to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about how the Ukraine war could very well change the global economy as we know it. Also going to be marking the uh, anniversary of the 2002 coup in Venezuela that briefly deposed President Hugo Chavez. And it's Friday, which means we're having our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, back in 2008, when Barack Obama and Joe Biden were running against John McCain and Sarah Palin for the presidency, the press seized upon Sarah Palin's announcement of the pregnancy of her unwed 17-year-old daughter and were doing what the press does, pointing out the hypocrisy of the conservative Republican Palin opposing sex education in public schools and opposing abortion and basically being a morality bully. But now the potential Republican vice president's family was making excuses for the kind of moral irresponsibility that they slashed food stamps for everybody else's pregnant teens over. At the time, Joe Biden said to the press that, quote, it is off limits to talk about her family. He said that in an interview with Fox and Friends on Fox News Channel. He said, every family has difficulty as they're raising their children. I think the way she's handled it has been absolutely exemplary. And then he pointed out that some of the criticism of Palin and her ability to handle the duties of vice presidency should they win and, and care for her five children, people were questioning that. Biden said of that criticism, well, how can you be a mother and a vice president at the same time? I mean, millions of women in America are going through exactly what she is going through. And guess what? They can handle it. Well, I don't know where that Biden went. But now the children of political leaders are fair game because the Biden administration just sanctioned Vladimir Putin's daughters. A senior Biden administration official said, quote, we believe that many of Putin's assets are hidden with family members, and that's why we're targeting them. I guess Putin is a very private man about his family. And you know what? Good for him. I don't want to know about his family. I don't care about politicians' children as long as they're not, oh, you know, using their daddy's political power to get high profile jobs on the board of directors of energy companies that they have no experience to fill, which Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, absolutely did. You and I know that he only got that job on the board of Burisma Gas Company in Ukraine because his father is Joe Biden and his father became the president of this country. But even though Putin doesn't talk much about his daughters, the U.S. government has decided that they are hiding Putin's assets. An article published by NPR reveals that Putin's eldest daughter is an endocrinologist and is described by the Treasury Department as working for the Endocrinology Research Center Moscow, which they call a, quote, state-funded program that has received billions of dollars from the Kremlin toward genetics research and that are personally overseen by Putin. 
And Putin's second daughter is a competitive dancer. But the U.S. Treasury also says that the dancing daughter of Putin is also a tech executive whose work supports the government of Russia and defense industry. Oddly, the words government of Russia in article is in brackets. And this whole article posted by NPR really just proves that they are also the scribes for the State Department. I mean, I've never seen wordsmiths as slick as the U.S. government and its officials when they want to accuse someone of something nefarious when there is really no evidence that they're actually doing anything wrong. The Treasury Department admits that the programs Putin's doctor daughter works on are state-funded, which is not illegal. That actually happens here, too. But they claim that the research she's doing is personally overseen by Putin. And how do they even make that claim with a straight face? What proof do they have that Putin himself is in the lab overseeing what his daughter, the endocrinologist, is doing, researching glands and hormones and genetics and such? And his dancer daughter is up to no good because she's a tech company executive for a company that does work that supports the Russian government and the defense industry in Russia? So according to the Treasury Department, researchers who work for any program that receives funds from the U.S. government are really being overseen personally by Joseph Biden. And anyone who works for tech companies that supports the U.S. government and the defense industry is guilty of colluding with the government. Oh, oh, wait. Amazon Web Services and Google and Alphabet Incorporated and a whole plethora of tech companies in this country actually do collude with the state to spy on citizens and support the defense industry. Meanwhile, Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, is still really not being held accountable for all of his nepotistic corruption in Ukraine and is probably going to escape a lot of real scrutiny for his shady deals with Chinese businessmen. And Joe Biden isn't pushing his attorney general, Merrick Garland, to make investigating that corruption a priority. Why? Because Hunter Biden is his son. But Putin's daughters are legitimate targets because Biden says so. Because Russians don't love their children, you know. That's what this administration is telling you. Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on, as they say. We're now happy to be joined by geopolitical analyst and author Pepe Escobar. Pepe, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Greetings from Istanbul, everybody. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, the pleasure is all ours, uh, Pepe. And, you know, Pepe, uh, as the war in Ukraine continues to escalate in a number of ways, there's been a lot of discussion about how the war itself following Russia's invasion uh, could very well signal uh, the emergence of a kind of uh, new geopolitical order or uh, what many are terming a multipolar world um, and the ending of the unipolar world under uh, U.S. hegemony. And I feel like this is showing up in the uh, economic 
field as well. When we talk about really global economics and what all that means with uh, the U.S. uh, putting uh, Russia off of SWIFT and other such things and Russia sort of increasingly uh, uh, wanting to deal in terms of its gas and energy resources in rubles and things like that. And this is something that could have uh, troubling implications for the dollar, which is sort of the uh, de facto global currency. But that appears like it could at least be beginning to shift. And you recently uh, published a piece about this uh, entitled uh, Meet the New Resource-Based Global Reserve Currency. And I was hoping, Pepe, you could break down. What do you mean when you talk about a resource-based global reserve currency? And how does the sort of current political moment with the war in Ukraine sort of impact that and how is it connected? That's a very broad question, but I feel like there's so much uh, packed into this that we kind of just got to start digging from that kind of uh, 10,000 foot view, if you will. Fantastic. Look, if I was at a Hollywood script meeting and I had to uh, deliver my plot line in less than 25 words, this is how it would go. Uh, instead of uh, a reserve currency backed by nothing, now we have reserve currency backed by commodities. This is what it is, essentially. And it's not the helicopter <laughs> thrown uh, dollars out of the sky backed by literally nothing or backed by a $30 trillion debt, in fact. Uh, not backed by a productive economy and certainly not backed by resources and not backed by manufactured products, which would be the case of China. What we have with the, let's call it the new ruble, or uh, I called it uh, in zest, of course, uh, ruble gas. Ruble gas is based, of course, uh, in uh, on natural gas, but soon it could be based also on oil, on uh, precious minerals, on wheat, uh, all the absolutely extraordinary wealth of reserves that Russia uh, detains. And they are, the, I would say, the, the resource reserve of the whole planet. And obviously, our friends uh, in Washington and Brussels, when they came up with this uh, sanction dementia in stages, because every week now we have a new package, the latest from the European Union yesterday, they didn't think about blowback, of course, and they didn't think that both their currencies are backed by literally nothing, unlike the ruble. Obviously, our friends at the Russian Central Bank, they were already studying it, <laughs> this phenomenon, and not necessarily the head of the Russian Central Bank, Elvira Nabulina, but a team. There is now a committee in Moscow that supervises uh, the work of the Russian Central Bank and includes economists that are not, let's put it this way, the, Jeff- the Jeffrey Sachs, Milton Friedman gang, if you know what I mean. So they say, okay, let's turn the whole thing around, which is a sort of geo-economic judo move, in fact. Okay, so we're going to prop our currency based on our natural resources. And we start with gas. And obviously, uh, when the Europeans especially saw it, they freaked out completely because the number one rule for, for ruble gas is, okay, you want to buy our, our gas, you have to pay in rubles, not anymore in dollars and euros. In fact, you will still be paying in dollars and euros, but this has to be done in Russia. This means that you open an account with Gazprom Bank in Moscow, 
So you're going to have two accounts, one in, in a foreign currency, probably in the case of European customers in euros, and another one in rubles. And Gazprom Bank itself uh, turns over foreign currency into rubles on the Moscow Stock Exchange mostly. So now you have two accounts and then you are ready to buy gas. And then uh, the money goes to different uh, customer accounts with Gazprom Bank as well. So it's a very, very simple mechanism. And, and that's the beauty of it. It's the stark simplicity of the whole mechanism. In fact, you're still spending in, uh, your dollars and your, um, uh, sorry, euros. But, but the thing is basically centralized in, in, in two bank accounts in Moscow instead of depositing in some uh, uh, foreign bank in uh, the European Union, in Japan, in the case of the Japanese customers, or in the U.S. And interestingly enough, the sanctions that were imposed upon Russia by the United States in response to this conflict in Ukraine actually pushed Russia to move toward this faster. I mean, Moscow is working on a set of documents defining the New Deal, basically making it uh, making it uh, the, the law of the economic land, as it were, yes. essentially telling countries um, no rubles, no gas. So exactly. is this like the, un the, the, the unintended consequences of Washington's uh, Russophobia, certainly, but a, a bad uh, power move by Washington against Russia that actually seems to be backfiring against uh, Washington and might benefit Russia and the rest of Europe in the long, in the long term. Oh, yes. That's a very good question, because this is the mother of all geoeconomic blowbacks, <laughs> actually. Uh, the thing is, uh, if, it's, it's very hard to explain to the West, that all these moves in Russia, they were gamed before, like Operation Z, or what in the West is called the invasion, which in Russia is called the denazification, demilitarization operation. They gamed at least 20 different scenarios with possibilities, with, with ramifications, you know, with <laughs> branching out, let's put it this way. And in the, in the economic sphere, they were expecting a tremendous offensive by the Americans, not so much by the Europeans, because the, the European reaction was judged by Moscow uh, to be even more hysterical than the American reaction. But this was somewhat game. It took them a few days. Okay. So what's, so what's going to be? <laughs> Everything that we gained before, what's going to be? It's very simple. This was already, uh, uh, because this was being discussed, not only in Russia, but with the key partners, which are the BRICS partners. This was discussed between Russia, China, and to a lesser extent, India as well. We have to start bypassing the US dollar in everything and especially in our energy deals. This is, a, to, to give an idea, this discussion started in earnest in the 2000s, in the BRICS meetings in the 2000s. So, so they have been fine-tuning their approach for 15 years. And obviously, the Indians knew about it, and the Chinese knew about it. 
It starts with a gas, but it can go to oil, it can go to minerals, it can go to wheat as well. So uh, it, it's it's a very Russian, uh, a well-known Russian tactic of increasing the pain dial, you know, little by little. And there's also, uh, considering uh, the long-term view, Putin and uh, uh, the the, the Russian leadership, they don't want to antagonize uh, Europe completely. They want to give them uh, five stages of denial. <laughs> Move. Okay, okay. Start thinking about it, and that's it. So that's it. This is the new normal, as uh, uh, the Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said yesterday. And we already seeing the results. Uh, there are already three European nations that said on the record, okay, we're going for ruble gas. Hungary, Austria, and Slovakia, and others will have to, because if you don't, it's very simple. You won't get your gas. It's simple as that. It is the new normal. So they turned uh, the whole sanction package upside down. And uh, and people in uh, Moscow, they also, they know very well that uh, the ultimate target of these sanctions is the European economy. The Americans started, then they nudged their vassals in Brussels to ramp up uh, sanctions. And of course, uh, the, the overall picture is that who's going to suffer much more than the Americans with uh, this refusal, let's put it this way, especially by France and Germany, not to pay gas in rubles. European economies, including the, the top two European powers, Germany and France. So... Uh, I was discussing this with some uh, Russian analysts and some American analysts as well. And uh, our conclusion is that uh, there's no question that <laughs> the Americans are being very, very clever to set up the Europeans for a fall, destroy their economies, and then the Americans can scoop up what, what's left, <laughs> assuming there will be something left afterwards. So the big price to be paid would be paid by European citizens and European consumers, in fact. Yeah, and you know, for me, Pepe, this kind of evidences a short-sightedness, in a sense, mm -hmm. on behalf of Washington and uh, uh, the Pentagon and things like this, because while I think they're being very intentional about, um, you know, how they've been maneuvering vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Russia and Ukraine, I mean, that's precisely why uh, this war began in the first place. It seems to me that this economic issue harms the U.S.'s attempt at isolating Russia, because let the U.S. tell it, the quote unquote international community is with them against uh, Russia. And by international community, I think they tend to generally mean the U.S., the U.K. or, or Western Europe. I th maybe I should say more generally and yes. kind of the junior partners of U.S. imperialism. But like you noted with, um, you know, some of. Uh, uh, the EU members and even what we've seen from other countries in terms of their overall positions. And this doesn't get really any coverage in, in the mainstream U.S. media in terms of how like the real international community, the actual multitude of governments with their different systems and definition of democracies have taken um, different stances. I mean, even countries close to the U.S., like, say, Brazil under a far right, yeah. some might say near fascist uh, presidency of Jair Bolsonaro has taken a neutral stance 
advance uh, towards uh, uh, Russia and Ukraine. So in terms of how Russia is dealing with uh, the ruble and this resource based uh, global currency, Pepe, I mean, do you think this hurts the uh, U.S.'s uh, attempt at trying to isolate Russia on the world stage in an attempt, at least I think, to carry out regime change and bring in a government that's more sympathetic towards Washington? Absolutely, because uh, in fact, it's the, uh, the Americans that are being isolated. <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you look at the real international community, which is not, as you mentioned, U.S., Canada, uh, Western Europe, and uh, a few colonies such as uh, uh, Japan, South Korea, and Singapore in Southeast Asia, seven-eighths of the planet, they did not demonize Russia or they did not sanction Russia. This is a fact. And this means virtually the whole of Eurasia, everywhere from West Asia to East Asia, South Asia, Central Asia, Southeast Asia, the, the Southeast Asian tents, apart from Singapore, of course, the whole of Africa and the whole of Latin, Latin America. This, this means the absolute majority of the so-called international community. Even here in Turkey, where I am, which is a very complicated diplomatic case because Turkey is a, is a NATO member, but Turkey is also looking at the East and seeing that their future as a big Eurasian power is with Eurasia, is not with the West. And they did not demonize Russia. They, In fact, they are trying to play a very sophisticated diplomatic role between uh, Moscow and Kiev, and they didn't sanction Russia. So it's uh, seven-eighths of, of the planet. Obviously, because uh, the decisions taken in Washington and the subsidiary Brussels, which is a Kafkaesque uh, concoction, in fact, uh, they, they live in a bubble. Uh, you know, uh, anybody who lives... In, in Washington knows how Washington is a very, very provincial bubble, in fact. Brussels is even worse. People buy bureaucrats who only care about their careers. And these people, they take their decisions. They don't look at uh, the real economy because very few of them are engineers, for instance, or they know how the real economy works. They are lawyers or they have a, a political science degrees or whatever, transgender studies, you name it. But they don't know anything about the real economy. And in the U.S., as we all know, uh, it's uh, the different factions of the deep state, and they only think about the deep state. And the rest of the world is a bunch of barbarians. This, this, is, this is how it works for decades. So when you're dealing not with uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, and Syria, but you're dealing with a major nuclear superpower, the first thing you would have would be to revise some of your notions. No, they don't. They keep applying the same playbook. And they think that they can make Russia fold. They cannot. First of all, because of Russia's military power which every good uh, uh, military analyst knows now that is practically unreachable for the U.S. because Russia is coordinating with China the emergence of a multipolar world across Eurasia, not only in terms of the Russian uh, post-Soviet space, but across Eurasia. And they invited Europe to be part of the whole thing. Years ago, since uh, Putin's uh, speech at the Munich Security Conference in 2007, they, uh, they, they spent years saying, look, we would love to have a, a free trade area from Lisbon to Vladivostok. 
Nobody paid attention. The Europeans didn't pay attention, of course, and neither did the Americans. And now, after eight years after Maidan in Kiev, when they saw a situation uh, in front of them that is a threat to their national security, and this is something that very few people across the West understand, they had to do something. So it was, uh, I, I would say, uh, a confluence of so many hardcore factors the fact that there was a slow motion shelling and extermination of civilian populations in Donbass, the fact that uh, uh, they knew about biolabs in uh, not only in Ukraine, in Georgia as well, but they needed to get proof that what 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 are these biolabs doing for all these years? They they knew that uh, the uh, Ukrainian army was being. Uh, weaponized by NATO for eight years nonstop with the best of NATO weapons everywhere. And when uh, Zelensky said on the record, in fact, in another Munich security conference, <laughs> a historical coincidence, that uh, Ukraine would start considering uh, uh, making nuclear weapons, that was uh, the, the straw that broke the, <laughs> the desert camel's back, let's put it this way, you know. So they had reasons to do that. We can disagree about the invasion itself. We can disagree about the methods. But we have to understand that in terms of national security, for any major power, all these conditions presented at the same time would elicit a very similar response if not even more destructive, because Russia is not in Ukraine to kill people. They are there to try to demilitarize a NATO militarized nation, and at the same time, denazify this whole complex, which is something that has been going on for eight years nonstop. And this has been widely documented, not only in Russian media, but in media all across the non-West. Let's put it this way. You can read about the Nazis in, uh, in Malaysia, in Indonesia, in Brazil, or in Argentina. Maybe not so much in the U.S. or in Europe. Yeah. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Pepe, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moved to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we are talking about the 20th anniversary of the 2002 coup in Venezuela, and we're happy to be joined for this conversation by Arnold August, Montreal-based author of three books on the U.S., Cuba, and Latin America, award-winning journalist published worldwide in English, French, and Spanish, member of the International Manifesto Group, and contributing editor for The Canada Files. You can find his work at www.arnoldaugust.com. Arnold, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. 
Well, the pleasure is all ours, Arnold. And, you know, uh, April 11th will mark uh, 20 years since the 2002 coup in uh, Venezuela that briefly deposed uh, then-President Hugo Chavez. And I feel like there's a lot of parallels, not even parallels necessarily. What I mean to say is a lot of relevance in terms of What's happening in Venezuela today, what's happening in Latin America today, and how the geopolitics of the region have sort of played out. And so I was hoping you could help us understand just what happened on April 11, 2002. Why is it relevant to uh, the history of Venezuela? And just what do you think it all means? Well, the the events of um, April 11th actually started a, a couple of days before uh, when uh, an important sector of the economy, that is the oil industry, uh, m- many of the employees of that uh, industry decided to go and strike to oppose the nomination by then-President Hugo Chavez to important people in that uh, state entity to be on the board of directors and, and help to contribute to run that the oil industry, as you know, is very important for the entire Venezuelan e- economy. So uh, two days later, uh, certain sectors of the workers there, uh, one has to admit that, you know, not all strikes on by workers have a positive uh, impact or a, a positive goal. In this case, it did not. They went uh, on a strike uh, starting uh, the 11th of April. And in order to express uh, their demands, they uh, announced an important demonstration uh, in the center of Caracas on that same day, on April 11th. Well, the story does not end there, because the Chavistas, in their millions, uh, organized a demonstration in support of the government's program with regards to the state oil company. And initially, it was agreed upon by even by the authorities that the Chavista March and the anti-Chavista March, if I may use that term, will be held in two different areas in the sprawling city of Caracas. Now, on April 11th, uh, as the uh, anti-Chavista marchers, uh, mainly seeking their sources from the oil company, uh, announced that, well, this is not enough. We are going to march to Miraflores. Miraflores is the headquarters of the uh, Venezuelan government and the area where the pro-Chavista demonstrators were holding the fort, so to speak. So they provocated, we are going there despite the agreement and despite the warnings even of the local police. Now, as they were approaching the uh, that area where the um, pro-Chavista marches ha- had massed, I mean, there's literally hundreds of thousands, an incident took place, which is directly linked to the role of the media. You know, as you watch events all over the world, whether it's Ukraine and Russia and other events similarly, in Latin America, we know the media in this era plays a key role in everything. So what happened there, uh, and there's pictures to, to prove it, video uh, footage to prove it, that some of the uh, anti-Chavista 
individuals went uh, on the top of an overpass where the Chavistas were demonstrating and literally shot at the Chavistas, uh, killing and injuring hundreds of them. But of course, what was the narrative? Sean and Jackie, I guess you know, they blamed it on the Chavista government that they supposedly shot at their own people. And then you have, uh, you know, skirmishes, many things, one thing led to the other. And uh, given that situation, uh, one section of the uh, Bolivarian army did, in fact, uh, dissent. They did uh, betray the army. And along with the uh, civil leaders of that counter-revolutionary coup, actually arrested Hugo Chavez-Frias on that day, on April 11th. That sort of initial background. I don't know if you guys have anything to answer or any questions or comments. Yeah, we definitely do, because, you know, I think this history and commemorating this history just elevates the reason and the fact that revolutions must always be defended. And this is why revolutions must always always be defended, because there is always this threat of the, the influence of uh, outside forces that are able to uh, weed their way in and convince some people internally to do their bidding against the revolution and uh, the people who are upholding it on the inside of a successful revolution. So you know, for a period of time, uh, yes, Chavez was uh, briefly removed from power. But what happened uh, at the uh, to resolve this issue? What was the outcome of it, and how did the people uh, restore uh, their revolution to its proper uh, place? I agree with you, Jackie. That is actually the key question. What happened? He was uh, arrested. There was a false. Uh, confession being circulated by the uh, those who took over Miraflores, saying that Chavez has resigned. But this was very quickly uh, 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 taken apart or uh, opposed with the real fact that he had not resigned. So the, the buildup uh, amongst the people on the street, and in fact, it, it was increasing as the day went by because the initial demonstration in the morning on April 11, there were many hundreds of thousands of, uh, of participants. But when people heard that Hugo Chavez was captured and also saw through the blatant lie that he has resigned, knowing full well that Chavez is not the type of person, not the type of revolutionary that would resign. He would rather die a martyr uh, rather than give in to the uh, demands of the you of the oligarchy in Venezuela, which we know are directly linked to the United States. So what happened? was a massive movement, increasing people pouring in into the center of Caracas from all different areas, popular areas, all over, surrounding the, uh, the center of, of, of Caracas and increasing their numbers many for it. Now, their main demand was, we want Chavez back into power. It was powerful. I mean, it's hard to, to answer your question uh, Jackie, I often in this type of situation, like you know, for me, what is important is the consciousness uh, 
of the Chavistas. And I'm not, I'm not talking about a few dozen Chavistas. I'm talking about millions of Chavistas, their political consciousness, their clarity, their, their knowledge of the goals and values of the Bolivarian Revolution and how, which they actually had participated in since 1989 and, uh, and 1999. And so this consciousness became a, a powerful force. It reminds me of Marx. He said that when people grasp theory, it becomes a material force, and that is exactly what happened. The consciousness and individual amongst individual Chavistas uh, in Caracas that day near the Miraflora uh, Palace, the individual con- uh, consciousness just sort of morphed into millions and millions of people, literally, um, adapting this consciousness as their own, the basis of which is this is our revolution, Chavez is our leader, and we want him back. So based on that, this massive common consciousness of the people was so powerful that it led right up to the Miraflores that it inevitably would lead to the release of Chavez. I cannot say inevitably, because the main other ingredient had to be that section of the revolutionary armed forces uh, that broke with the other another section of the armed forces that betrayed and supported his ouster. That section of the armed forces aligned openly and proudly with the ordinary masses of people on the street demanding that Chavez be reinstated. And this was so powerful. We, 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 you know, we've seen this in films and documents. It was so powerful that even the United States and its allies there who had organized the coup, they had to give in. They had to give up, resign, and allow Chavez to be brought back uh, triumphantly. I think he, he arrived in a helicopter amongst the millions of people right in front of the Miraflores gates and once again was installed uh, in power. So I think this is, um, it, to answer one of your previous, it, it is an important lesson to learn for Latin America and the peoples of the world that the importance of consciousness, the importance of ideology. And this is what factored in more than anything else uh, in that b- courageous move of the millions of Chavistas in front of the presidential palace, irrespective of the possibility that they might actually be gunned down by the sellout factions of the uh, of the army and local police, did not take into account their own life. They said, "What the most important thing is, we want Chavez back." And I think this is, you know, and of course the 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 role of the media. We cannot underestimate the role of the media. Uh, for example, as I mentioned before, uh, when the um, anti-Chavista forces fired on the Chavista forces and then blaming that shooting on the Chavista forces, the, the media went wild in Venezuela and all over the world to to uh, perpetuate this complete lie that is taking place. So this is also part of the fabric uh, 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 of U.S. imperialism, also part of uh, the what people in Latin America elsewhere have to fight against this use of the media to 
to construct their own narrative, even if it is completely false, to bring about a situation which favors their own situation. In this case, it failed. And I think, um, if I just make one other comment, like the, the Venezuelans have a very good saying, and it, it's become immortal, is that with every referring to April 11th and being returned to power uh, shortly after on April 13th, the Venezuelans say there will always be Every, no, it's this way, sorry. Every April 11th has its April 13th. In other words, every defeat, e.g. April 11th, eventually the people will win and it will, it, they will have their April 13th. So, you know, this is also uh, contributing to the consciousness uh, of the Venezuelan people, their history, their, their knowledge of what uh, what they have accomplished by defending the revolution. And it, it, it has major impact, and not only in, in Venezuela, but all over the world, because, especially in Latin America, because similar activities take place, brazen media lies, takeovers by pro-American factions in different countries. And the right and the duty and the possibility, actually possibility of the people, going as in Venezuela at that time uh, on April 13th, going against all odds, because let us make it clear that coup was supported by the United States, a pretty powerful uh, uh, opponent, right? They went against that and actually won their um, their goal. So uh, if anything else comes up, defeat, the millions of, Fen of Venezuelans know every ele April 11th, has its April 13th. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Arnold, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Friday, which means it's time for another edition of our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle with Nate Wallace, co-host of The Red Spin Sports Podcast. Nate, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Sean Jackie, how's it going? Doing well, Nate, doing well. And, you know, it seems that uh, the crackdown on Russian athletes and uh, performers and other cultural workers uh, seems to really be uh, heating up here, Nate. Uh, I was just seeing a piece about how uh, Wimbledon seems uh, set to ban uh, a tennis player, uh, Daniil Medvedev. I believe we're seeing uh, similar moves in other sports as well. I was hoping you could sort of break down uh, some of what's been happening here and, and how it factors into the, you know, intense russophobia that's uh, all the rage in the U.S. right now. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like so with Wimbledon, you know, Danielle uh, Medvedev is a superstar tennis player and I haven't lived in Russia for 10 years, but uh, again, the demand for him to personally denounce uh, Vladimir Putin is the condition being placed on his ability to participate in what is 
the uh, premier event in tennis around the globe every year at the All, All England Club outside of London. So um, we're, it, this is absolutely part and parcel of trying to put a cost on, you know, that, you know, basically participation in the form of, of, of Russian athletes. It's never applied to, like we talked about this again before, with uh, American athletes. So with athletes really in most any country where, uh, but especially the U.S. I mean, nobody, you know, post-Iraq war, war on terror, you know, Libya, go down the line, has ever had to, like, you know, go to the Olympics and, uh, you know, say I denounce, you know, Donald Rumsfeld and big thing and Paul Wolfowitz and George W. Bush. You know, that never happened, right? You never have, you know, in, in any context, right? It doesn't matter what the situation is. So uh, it, it's, 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 I don't even know if, I think the hypocrisy, they, they probably know about it, but I think people are blind to it. They, they, they you know, you go, I was at the Knicks that game last night, New York City, and just walking around. You know, so many Ukraine flags, uh, so many just blue and yellow. And it's sort of like, look, I mean, it's sad. I don't want this to end. Um, you know, no one wants to see civilians, you know, getting killed, whatever. But it's like there's totally divorced from any context. And what it does is that type of, like, the visuals around you constantly it creates a groupthink, like a blob mentality, where if you deviate from that um, and you point out that maybe, like, well, why are we having this expectation of athletes that, that's, uh, you know, if we don't apply to ourselves in situations of war crimes and, and whatever alleged war crimes, uh, you know, in the case of most recent stuff in, in, in Ukraine, and I'm sure there have been war crimes, war as hell, you know, and it's, but it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's just very, it's it, the level of propaganda and level of psyop type, uh, you know, um, this group think is going on now and the way that permeates in the sport. We see it with the Boston marathon too now, which is, Russian and Belarusian, just runners, individual runners in the States, the Boston Marathon being the most famous of marathons in the U.S., is uh, not allowing them to participate as of, I guess, they have the wrong passport. So um, it's uh, it's pretty wild times we're living in, but I think what's even crazier about it is how it uh, is sort of not seen by many people or perceived by many people to really be as insane a moment as it actually is. I think we're recognizing that contemporaneously, but for a lot of people it won't be Still, you know, historians kind of dig through this era that people realize just how upside down the reality is we're, we're existing in and we're experiencing right now. Yeah, that's definitely the case, Nate, especially since, you know, there's a lot of talk in this country about cancel culture and what it is and what it is not. But I'm looking at all of this happening and all of these athletes uh, who, like you said, have the wrong passport, and they are literally being canceled. This is cancel culture. And what people have been complaining about is, is cancel, cult, uh, cancel culture doesn't hold a candle to what's being done to uh, athletes whose passport is from Russia. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, it, it's, it's a, it, there's, I mean, you would think that I mean, I mean, let's just go down the line. Obviously, the, for a situation with Saudi athlete, this would not be a problem. You know, obviously, you never even think about Israeli athletes ever being forced to denounce the the endless uh, injustices and atrocities committed against the Palestinian people or, or the people of Syria. Uh, you know, their, their neighbor there that they continue to bomb. Um, they just sort of just flies under the radar. Most people here in the West, not just the U.S., but of course Western Europe, um, and uh, and and that's just sort of where we are, we're in this kind of realm where then if you point this stuff out, the enormity and the sheer size and scope of 
the messaging and how it's being pushed out in all sorts of different corners. I mean, uh, is it from liberal establishment media to Sean Hannity having Sean Penn on the other night and like with Sean Penn evidently um, having turned into a neocon, you know, uh, the, <laughs> and, uh, in, in the last, you know, however long, who knows, but it's, it's meant to make us question our own sanity and, and to like just sort of fall in line and conform and to put a price on questioning. And, uh, I think that's pretty dystopian to be, to be quite frank. So, I mean, you see it with a Formula One driver too. Who's, you know, it's a BBC piece. Uh, let me make sure I get his name right. But I don't personally like, you know, Nikita Nikita Mazepin. Uh, and forgive me if I mispronounce his last name, but you know, he can't drive anywhere in the world um, because, you know, of course, he's being personally sanctioned. I guess is uh, being a, uh, you know. I guess you have to denounce Putin. That's the, that's the price, right? So, um, you know, I mean, I guess you could say he's a wealthy, wealthy, privileged guy. So maybe it's not the same, but and it, his father's an oligarch. But nonetheless, it's just that he, there's a BBC interview that's kind of interesting about two, three minutes. If you look it up, Nikita Mazepin, uh, M-A-Z-E-P-I-N, and it says to fight cancel culture stances. And he makes the point that this is cancel culture against just Russians, right? you know, and, uh, on the basis of um, the idea that, this was just a completely unprovoked military um, intervention that it wasn't, you know, part of a response to an eight year civil war and the total unwillingness of the U S to negotiate good faith. And so this is cancel culture. It's, it's, it's real, but it's like, you know, what, what people perceive that as and what, you know, this manifestation of it is, um, are not really clearly defined all the way across the board in our culture. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like another uh, way we're seeing this show up, uh, if we look recently at the International Gymnast Federation or the FIG that banned uh, the flags and the playing of the national anthems for Belarus and Russia um, at its competition in response uh, to the war in Ukraine. And, you know, I was looking at this piece on uh, Mike.com, how Russian athletes are aiding Putin's propaganda war, which... And I mean, the, the, the cover art is, is like a, it's like a photo of Putin holding a microphone with like his mouth agape looking very strange. It's, you know, sort of a, a typical sort of thing. But they, they, they point out how um, Ivan Kuliak, a young man named Ivan Kuliak, who, you know, is a Russian gymnast, not really well known, but who uh, made headlines. Um, during a competition with the FIG where uh, he wore. Uh, a white paper with the letter Z on it on his uniform, of course, in reference to uh, the Russian military operation in Ukraine and, uh, uh, you know, was sort of criticized for it. Now, mind you, this is uh, again after, uh, you know, uh, as an athlete, you're not able to stand for your country's flag and anthem and things like that. And I mean, look, if, if people I mean, if you want to criticize his support for the war, I think that's one thing. But it, it seems to me that it's these Russian athletes that are facing a collective punishment for the actions of their government. And when they don't, you know, just basically roll over or if they're not sort of uh, effusive enough in their condemnation, well, then they become a, uh, uh, you know, a target of attack as well. And it's pretty wild. I even saw... Um, you know, there was a, a Russian born 
professional wrestler uh, here in the United States. I think she was adopted, and she was like, hey, Leela Hirsch is her name. And she uh, even got attacked because she wore um, an outfit, her ring gear, with uh, Russian flag colors on it. So something as uh, simple as that. And, I mean, she had to put out a statement condemning uh, the war in Ukraine and all of that as well, called Vladimir Putin a dictator and, and all of that. But I think, unfortunately, even though these sorts of things may have an impact on individuals, it seems to me that um, this uh, this attack or this focus on uh, the Russian athletes, it seems like it, there's like this weird cathartic thing about it to people, right? It's like people are taking frustration yeah. that they feel with the Russian government in general and, and Vladimir Putin specifically and they're, you know, uh, uh, just dumping it all over these athletes who didn't, like, have anything to do with any of that. You know what I mean? And so, you know, and, and you're right that it seems that if, if, if American athletes got this same treatment for what the U.S. is doing currently or has done throughout history, I'm not sure you'd see an American athlete anywhere. You know what I mean? Uh, it's, not, it's, not, it's not even just that, though. It's like if with our athletes, it's like, you know, they're just being asked to like, you know, they're not even with them. They, they can't show any pride. It's like for them, it's like not only it's not saying like, oh, you just can't wear the flag to your country. You know, your country's at war. Like even if, what do people in the U.S. always say? Even if I, I don't disagree with my government, you know, you talk to people like I, I support our troops, right? You know, I support our country. And, you know, whether right or wrong, it's my country sort of thing, right? I mean, Americans at, at, at even the most, um, you know, the people that have that mentality, right? Like they're, they're, they, they believe that, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I got to just support my country is where I'm from sometimes. And it's like, that's not even what the situation with the Russian athletes are. They're not even making any statements at all. They literally could, you know, they're not talking about where going out you know, boisterously waving the flag, any of that stuff. It's just being able to participate. And the price on that is like, not only not showing the flag of your country, not like, you know, identifying yourself with it, but also having to denounce like the head of state of said country that, that I think that just, I can't be pointed out like stronger. I mean, cause it's just, it's, it's the most insane standard imaginable. And it's coming from a lot of people that, that, that push the idea of like, you know, you should love your country, but I guess it's only if you're from the right country. Right. Which means, you know, it's beacon on a shining hill. We live in here called the U.S. <laughs> called America. So it's just uh, you know you gotta you just have different rules, right? And that's just sort of the way the game's played now, I guess. Yeah, totally. Uh, a rules-based order, if you will. And, you know, uh, there's also this issue of uh, switching from Russia to Qatar to talk about the Qatar World Cup. It's been reported that uh, 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 some of the workers were exploited, which I think is basically almost always the case with the World Cup, which is kind of like these massive undertakings. And I was hoping you could tell us about that here in the last couple of minutes. Well, yeah, the interesting part of this, this is nothing new. This goes back to 2010. I mean, and this is the same you know, FIFA that selected Cutter and with the idea and, you know, ostensibly buying their ridiculous um, presentation that they were going to have, like, outdoor air conditioning at stadiums. Because you know, the World Cup's usually in May, June, or July. And that, that time for now, it's going to be November or December this year. Why? Because the insane heat of Cutter. The only reason it went there is they bribed FIFA. FIFA's an extremely corrupt organization. Then they have a non-existent labor practice policy. I mean, if you're Qatari, you're considered... They're part of the elite. They're part of like, you know, and all their workers are not Qataris. They're all brought in from Nepal, from Pakistan, from other countries, from, you know, mainly the Indian subcontinent and East Africa. 
And uh, the numbers of deaths, I mean, we've seen like 6,500 cited by a lot of, a lot of, you know, I think it's pretty, pretty fair number. I mean, granted, give or take, but I mean, that's, that's, it's insane. I mean, this has gone on in 2014. So that the cutters acknowledging now is that they made changes in 2014. There were these abuses and we're really sorry for that, but things have changed now. We tightened it all up and, Human Rights Watch report, um, Amnesty International report, like they completely contradict that. Even though Carter is trying to kind of get out in front of this in a PR move to address the elephant in the room that they know they're getting hit with and going to continue to get hit with the rest of this year until the World Cup starts in November, um, by trying to say that we understand it's a problem, we've made changes, and but I, these changes are ridiculous. I mean, they, and there's nothing that stops employers and Cutter from just taking your passport and not paying you. Like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? So it's like that. That's the context for this World Cup, and in a, in a mass amount of death. I mean, like in, in terms of just like heat exhaustion, um, you know, just just work exhaustion, um, just uh, mechanical accidents on construction sites, uh, and families that want answers. You know, back in you know places like Pakistan, places like Nepal. So, uh, you know, we need to keep following, you know, what comes out of this and basically the way Cutter is trying to get, it, get themselves out in front of this from a PR standpoint, because we know that Cutter has been very strategic in how they kind of developed international relations around the world. And this is all about like a soft power move for them. They're one of the biggest natural gas providers in the world. So uh, it's really important for them to try to, like, control the narrative on this. And I think it's important then to for the people that are, you know, care about things such as you know, human rights uh, to uh, to push back on their explanations because they're they're bogus explanations and they're they're not they're not good ones and uh, and I think that's clear if you really dig into the details. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Nate, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moving to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Friday, April 8th, 2022. And, of course, you can always check us out as we're streaming live on rumble.com slash C as in cat slash B-A-M necessary. You can also download our shows on sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. And we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Brian Becker, host of the Socialist Program. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, great to be with both of you. Absolutely. And Brian, the war in Ukraine is uh, steadily escalating. And uh, with the most recent issue, I think, being this uh, purported massacre in uh, uh, Buka, this town uh, not far from the Ukraine capital city of Kiev, with the Ukrainian government and the U.S. and its allies claiming that uh, uh, Russia, Russian troops carried out uh, a massacre. The Russian government, uh, of course, uh, denying this. And I tend to feel like there's 
some serious questions around the timeline and the whole narrative of it. And, you know, even beyond that, Brian, I've also been thinking about our current political moment kind of from a, a, a philosophical standpoint, but not you know, a head in the clouds, uh, intangible, I mean, like, a, you know, a material kind of philosophical thing in the sense that one of the main narratives or trends or dynamics that are emerging out of this moment that we're in is this conversation around unipolarity versus multipolarity. And I feel like this is being acknowledged in different ways in different sectors of society, but certainly for progressive minded people in the U.S., left leaning people, socialists, communists, anti-imperialists and, and folks like that. It's been really kind of a hot topic because what's clear is that um, it feels like we're at an inflection point between a world defined by U.S. hegemony, which has been the situation for quite some time. And the possibility of uh, a global situation wherein there are many players, many perspectives, and many interests that are rightly considered instead of being subsumed and subjugated under a superpower. But I really want to dig into this concept of multi Polarity. And I've heard you uh, talk about this elsewhere, Brian, about how, you know, multipolarity on its face isn't necessarily uh, the answer to uh, a lot of the pressing issues that we're facing right now. There can be a world that is technically multipolar and still not be answering some of the most critical questions that face humanity. So it seems to me that the character of the multipolarity is what makes all the difference. And so from your perspective, particularly as someone who has been in the movement for so long, uh, what do you think when we talk about multipolarity, what are some of the things that we should really be looking for? And what is sort of the deeper meaning of it, I guess is what I'm asking. Right. Those are those are really good questions. And I, I want to apologize to the two of you and to your audience for my, my voice. I'm, I have a bit of a cold or something. But um, to you know, to address what you're saying, Sean, you know, when we think about the unipolar world, that is the world that came into being. When we talk about the world, we're talking about the political, global, political, and economic and military landscape of the past three decades. The point of inflection at that time was, of course, the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the end of the socialist camp. So not only was the Communist Party and the Soviet Union overthrown, but the Soviet Union itself was dismembered. Soviet Union was the second biggest economy and the second biggest military power in the world. It had been the most sanctioned country in the world, but in spite of that, using its vast spaces and natural resources and a planned economy, the Soviet Union became a major, you know, the number two power in the world. And then suddenly, within a three-year period, starting in 1988 and ending in 1991, the Soviet Union and all of its socialist government allies were, were toppled. So the Soviet Union broke apart. 
Ukraine became independent. Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, independent. Azerbaijan, uh, Georgia, Armenia, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan. Uh, the Soviet Union was 15 republics, socialist republics, and they and they broke and they broke apart. They became independent, and then the countries that were the Soviet or Russian allies in Eastern Europe, and that included East Germany, Bulgaria, Poland, Romania, and Yugoslavia to an extent, um, Albania uh, to an extent, um, those countries were toppled, the governments were toppled, and step by step, those countries were moved into uh, NATO and some of them into the EU, so that this the Ru Russia, which was the anchoring republic of the Soviet Union, lost its allies in the Soviet Union, and lost its allies in Eastern and Central Europe, and those allies didn't become neutral for the most part. They became part of an American sphere of influence and a U.S.-led military alliance called NATO, and so. The world shifted. This was a major historic event in the world. And it impacted not just the people in those countries, but it impacted the people in Africa and Asia, in the Middle East. The U.S. embarked on a plan to basically wipe out the independent governments that were a, prod, a product of the anti-colonial project and had been allied in one way or another with the Soviet Union and the socialist camp. So the U.S. targeted Iraq and Syria, and of course they were going for Libya and Lebanon. Um, they stopped in Somalia along the way. They were also hoping to crush the Hezbollah in, in Lebanon. So the U.S. plan was to reshape the world following the collapse of the other second po uh, power in the world that challenged U.S. hegemony. And the countries in Africa and Asia and the Middle East, in addition to being subject to occupation and sanction and war, they were also subject, if they wanted to be integrated into the world economy, as opposed to being sanctioned and evicted from the world economy, they were subjected to what was called structural adjustment programs, meaning they had to agree that all of their natural resources, their public utilities, their water, their electricity, the core infrastructures of the anti-colonial states or post-colonial states is a better way to put it, all of those in order to access credit in the world market and a world dominated by the dollar, they had to succumb to IMF uh, terms, which were called structural adjustment, meaning you have to denationalize water, denationalize your electric grid, denationalize service, uh, services, and allow Western corporations, mainly the US, to purchase those products. So when people looked at the last 30 years and saw all of the fallout of the unipolar world, meaning the rest of the world is subjected to hegemonic dominating 
policies and wars and sanctions and structural adjustment programs that had the impact of sort of recolonizing the formerly colonized world, people are looking for an alternative. And if unipolar power has done that to the world in the last 30 years, the obvious or seemingly obvious answer would be let's create a multipolar world. If Russia gets strong enough, if China gets strong enough, if they unite, if they unite with Brazil and India and South Africa as they did for a moment in, in, in BRICS, what's called the BRICS alliance, it's not really an alliance, that there would be like an alternative to U.S. domination as there had been under the Soviet, during the Soviet era. But I believe that's superficial, that idea, because it doesn't, as we can see in Ukraine, it doesn't stop war, it doesn't create peace, it doesn't necessarily lead to economic equality. The problem isn't simply unipolar power versus bipolar or multipolar power. The problem is, is there a real alternative to the exist the dominant existing system, which is an imperialist system dominated by the former colonizers of the world? They dominate militarily and they dominate economically. And you can see by what happened to Russia. Russia is a very big country and lots of resources. But in effect, not totally, but in effect, overnight, uh, Russia could be evicted and Russians could be evicted from the world economy. And we're, you know, we don't know where this is going, but it could escalate because the U.S. really doesn't want a negotiated settlement in Ukraine. Yeah, I don't know if you noticed, but in Right before the Wednesday, this Wednesday, two days ago, meeting in Brussels of NATO, all of the Western media was like, yes, the U.S. government and the NATO powers support Zelensky's right to negotiate with Russia. They support a negotiated settlement of the war, but within limits, within limits, meaning they didn't want Zelensky to make any significant concessions to Russia, which really means they want the war to keep going. This is a proxy war by the United States and now with the allies in NATO against Russia. But Ukraine, the Ukrainians are the ones doing the fighting for the West. And they're doing the bleeding and the dying and they're suffering from the war. But the U.S. wants the war. Uh, the U.S. is happy to have the war. And Russia isn't really projecting a forward-facing alternative to world imperialism. It's not like in the Soviet era where the Soviets, while they had national security interests, of course, first and foremost, they were also presenting the idea that, that a better world was possible, a socialist world. Russia's really, Russia's agenda is very uh, minor. Russia only wants to protect Russia, which is completely legitimate. It doesn't want to have advanced nuclear and conventional missiles targeting Russia, you know, along a 1,200-mile-long border with, that it shares with Ukraine. And so Russia, on a, on a sort of legitimate but, you know, narrow focus of national security, has gone to war uh, in Ukraine in order to defend itself. And the U.S. and the imperialist powers are quite happy with this war because that means they can weaken Russia and of course, weakening Russia will also weaken China. And so the U.S. 
is looking to do just that. For us, for progressives, for like I'm a socialist, long, lifelong socialist, we're not just trying to create different power centers in the world. We want a just world. We want a socialist world. We want to have the vast resources of society be used for the benefit of the working class, the poor, the, you know, the people, uh, instead of being endlessly funneled into endless war. Anyway, I'll stop there. That was a long answer to your, well, it was a relatively long question, but a lot shorter than my answer. Well, I think it was a great answer and the perfect answer to segue into this next question. Because, you know, as a socialist myself, I want the same thing that you do, Brian. You know, everyone we organize with wants those same things. But I, I get resistance from people who are also, you know, lifelong leftists, although I'm not sure that they're really socialists, but they they are lifelong leftists. At least they are anti-liberal, and that clearly is not enough, but this is what I think they are. And and they do point out that, you know, we we leftists, we socialists, um, are, are are, you know, really starry-eyed about this conflict and we're pining for, you know, a Soviet Union of days gone by that was uh, socialist, that was, that did have socialist policies. And we are hoping that, uh, you know, with a, a, a defeat of the U.S.-backed uh, forces in Ukraine, that Russia would somehow uh, revert to its uh, socialist uh, inclinations in its former uh, iteration as the, so as the uh, Soviet Union. Um, although we know very well that Vladimir Putin is a capitalist, he likes capitalism. He's not anywhere close to a socialism to a socialist. He made that very clear. So, how do we contend first with with this idea that we get from people who think that you know we're just a bunch of immature children for wanting socialism so you know everyone can have their needs meet around met around the world, but also dealing with the reality that even if Russia should prevail and end this with uh, without further, you know, catastrophe to the rest of the world and with uh, uh, shored up security for themselves and with some, you know, uh, you know, let the end of the loss of life in Ukraine, knowing that Russia is not going to probably participate in the socialist experiment at all. How do we contend, how do we walk that line with wanting socialism for the world and understanding that Russia is probably not going to be a part of that equation either? Yeah, I mean, you know, Russia's, I mean, I don't speak Russian, so I can't really even pretend to know exactly what's going on in, internally in Russian politics. But, I mean, Putin and the political forces aligned you know, you know, in the last 20 years with Putin, his party, um, they're not socialist. They're, it's an, it's an anti-communist party and there is a communist party. There's several communist parties in Russia and they have a very severe critique of the current Russian government on its economic and social policies. Some of them are disagreeing with the policy in Ukraine. Uh, the largest party is essentially supporting the Russian military operation in Ukraine. But Putin made it clear when he, both in his February 21st speech, where for the first time in eight years, he says, we're gonna recognize the independence of the two 
republics, the Donetsk and Luhansk uh, republics in the east, in the Donbass, the Russian-speaking, ethnically Russian uh, parts of the of the Ukrainian population. We're going to recognize their independence. And then he also says in that speech, he says, you know, Ukraine, he essentially suggests that Ukraine isn't a legitimate country because he said, if you want to call it anything, you can call it Vladimir Lenin's Ukraine. And by that, he meant that there was a, a treaty between Russia and Ukraine and Belarus in 1922, and it was ratified in 1924, that created the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. And, you know, there was, there's this intertangling or overlapping of ethnicity, nationality, language, inside of Russia and throughout what had been the Russian Empire, stretching all the way, you know, to the West, to to Poland. And the Soviet and Bolshevik policy was to uphold or raise up the non-Russian speaking parts of the population in Ukraine and Georgia elsewhere, and especially in Ukraine to carry out in the 1920s a policy of what the Bolsheviks called indigenization, meaning that Ukrainian language would be used in the off political offices and schools and other official sites inside of the Ukraine Socialist Republic, not only or not even mainly Russian. That was a big sort of promotion of Ukrainian national identity, but it didn't necessarily and didn't lead to a division within the former Soviet Union because the other element of the Bolshevik policy was that all the ethnicities got another identity and, were, and it was called Soviet citizenship. So yes, you could be a Russian, you could be Ukrainian, you could be Georgian, you could be Armenian, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and your culture could be raised up. You could have a republic or one of the 15 republics in the USSR but you were also united on the basis of the Soviet citizenship. So for the, the fact that, the fact that, and, and also in that February 21st speech, Putin denounces Lenin for having included the Donbass, which is, you know, historically Russian and Russian speaking people, but more, most importantly, in a more industrial part um, to, to bring it into the borders of Ukraine. So what he's say, basically saying is that the Russians who live in Ukraine were forced by Lenin to be part of a Ukrainian republic when really they were really Russian. And this creation, this artificial creation of, of Ukraine not only was artificial, but it you know, savaged the rights of Russian-speaking people who weren't really Ukrainian. They were Russians. So his whole speech is filled with grievance and and also anti-Bolshevism. Well, why is he saying all of those things? He, well, three days later, on February 24th, there was a second speech, and that's when he announces the special military operation in Ukraine. And clearly, Putin was playing to a Russian national, politically a Russian nationalist audience that could identify with the grievance that the Russian-speaking 
and Rus ethnically Russian part of the population having been forced into Ukraine in 1922, as he put it, by the Bolsheviks, was now being targeted uh, by Ukrainian fascists following the February 2014 coup d'etat that overthrew the Yanukovych government and brought a very far-right government into power. And even though that government over time wasn't, quote, not a Nazi government, Poroshenko's not a Nazi, Zelensky wasn't a Nazi, uh, the fascist forces, the right sector, the Azov uh, Battalion and the Azov Movement and others have been largely incorporated into the body politic of Ukraine, even though they did poorly in the 2019 parliamentary election, the right wing only got 2.1% of the vote. The Azov Battalion in particular was incorporated into the National Guard. And so they're legitimized as a fascist force within the Ukrainian military. So Putin is saying, look, 14,000 people have been killed since 2014. They're Russians. They're Ukrainian in Ukraine, but they're Russian-speaking people. And they're being targeted because they're Russians, and they shouldn't have been there in the first place. Now, that is going to resonate with a big part of the Russian population. But you see, the way he framed it was in an anti-Bolshevik way. He didn't necessarily have to do that, but it reflects his true feelings. I think they're sincerely held beliefs. And it also shows that Putin is essentially an anti-communist or certainly an anti-Bolshevik political force. I mean, he's not against the Chinese Communist Party. Obviously, he has alliances. But, yeah, I think, Jackie, the, the whole point for us is not for those of us who are grassroots political movement builders for social change and social justice and peace, it's wrong to think that the solution to the problem of unipolar imperialism is the creation of other multipolar states that are basically pursuing their own national or nationalist agenda, which even if it's legitimate, it's not a social justice agenda. It's about protecting Russia. So in one sense, you could say that social justice for the Russian-speaking part of the population in the eastern part of Ukraine, but not in, a, not in a global way, not in a philosophical way, not from the point of view of a worldview. And I think that the, you know, when we go through these different periods, like, you know, think about World War I, the, the epitome of a multipolar world that goes to war where the different poles fight each other for who's going to dominate Africa, who's going to dominate Latin America in the Middle East and Asia. How are the colonies and semi-colonies and spheres of influence going to be redivided amongst the colonizers? That's what World War I was about. And with the exception of the Soviet Union's entrance into World War II, for the Western countries, that was pretty much what World War II was about. Like those led to the biggest wars and the most devastating, catastrophic acts of violence in the history of the human race, World War I and World War II. Those are the expressions of multipolarity. But what we need is a system that's based on a vision where people actually are trying to create and can create, can create social justice governments and economies within their own borders and based on international solidarity with others in other countries who are trying to do the same thing. 
definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour. On that note, here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., we'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And we continue our conversation, myself and Jackie Lukeman, here with Brian Becker, host of The Socialist Program. And speaking of uh, socialism... Uh, Brian, you know, I often mention on the show and make reference to how Vladimir Lenin, who we talked about a little earlier, leader of the Bolshevik uh, Revolution in 1917. um, And uh, I reference his piece, uh, Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism. And I was hoping you could get into that a little bit about imperialism what it is, what it isn't, and how it factors into the Ukraine war. Because one of the number one talking points that I hear in all this, if someone says, well, uh, I don't agree with Russia invading Ukraine, but ultimately it's the U.S. and NATO who are the real perpetrators— When someone lays out this sort of very uh, fundamental understanding of the situation, uh, it's it's they're then faced with this uh, accusation of, well, basically, well, you know, it's not NATO troops into Ukraine. How can you say that the Putin government was pressured by the U.S. and basically being accused of like making excuses uh, for the Putin government or for Vladimir Putin as an individual, which is how it's often uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, characterized as if the entire government boils down to uh, uh, just one person. And I, I feel like a lot of the problem, and this isn't the first time this has been raised as an issue, is, you know, clarity around just what in imperialism is. So, Brian, how is it that we can point the finger at the U.S. and NATO for, you know, w- what's happening in Ukraine? I mean, is this a kind of you know, immature uh, anti-Americanism or simply being anti-Western or, you know, is it hypocritical uh, to, you know, criticize the U.S. for all of its conflicts, but not have the same criticism, supposedly, from from what some think, for Russia in terms of the war in Ukraine? Uh, how are you seeing that in terms of what's really happening? Yeah, well, just I think to be precise on it, you can— Certainly, you can certainly have the position that you don't support the Russian invasion into Ukraine and at the same time reject the Western narrative about why this crisis and this war is happening. Definitely. Because the United States had the opportunity, and it's really the United States. NATO, in many ways, is just an extension of American power. It's really the United States calls the shots in NATO. The United States had ample opportunity to come to a serious negotiating position with Russia 
in the last months before the invasion where Putin and the Russian government was making it crystal clear that there were red lines that they weren't going to allow to be violated. The red lines were Ukraine can't become a member of NATO. Ukraine can't become, whether it's a member of NATO or not formally, it cannot become the staging ground for the placement of your missiles, nuclear and conventional missiles, along the Russian border. And Putin said, just like, and he said it in his speech, he said, you know, you wouldn't let us, you wouldn't let us put advanced nuclear and conventional missiles at the U.S.-Canadian border or the U.S.-Mexican border. These are missiles that have a flight time of less than 10 minutes to their targets. And, you know, they could you target Los Angeles and Chicago and Washington, New York City. You wouldn't let us do that. And we're not going to let you do it in Ukraine. This is a red line. To which the United States said over and over and over again, look, Russia, you don't tell us, NATO, whether we can include a country, Ukraine or another country, into our military alliance. You don't have veto power over NATO. And you don't have veto power over what Ukraine wants to do. Ukraine must have the right to join whatever military alliance it wants. So the U.S. obviously took this hardline position. And the Russians are coming back again saying, oh, really? Would you allow us to use Canada or Mexico as a staging ground for these advanced missiles? Obviously, the answer is no. You really, this is a, a you know, it's a BS position. And, and during that whole time, if you listen to how Biden talked and Anthony Blinken and Jake Sullivan, Blinken, Secretary of State Sullivan, National Security Advisor, they talk about they, they, they're actually predicting a Russian invasion for like two months. And they say, yeah, we think it's going to happen. And if it happens, uh, if it doesn't happen, good. We always favor diplomacy. But if it does happen, we're ready. There was no urgency there was no urgency in their voice. You could, I've, I've gone back and replayed all their speeches, not all of them, but many of them. And there's no urgency. They're like, they're perfectly fine with, uh, you know, any outcome. The, the Russians can, can back down diplomatically or the Russians could militarily invade. But the United States isn't going to meet Russia halfway and agree that Ukraine is going to be neutral. So it's obvious that when they know and are predicting that Russia is going to invade and they still do nothing except send more weapons to Ukraine. They pumped in billions, literally billions of dollars of weapons starting in December 2021 to get ready for the war. So the Russians are looking at this and they're like, OK, we said it's a red line. We're really serious. We really mean it this time. We're not going to let you do this with Ukraine. And the U.S. is like, basically, F you. And we're going to keep sending weapons to Ukraine and we're not going to negotiate. That, that meant that the U.S. knew that the Russians would probably invade, as they were predicting. And then as soon as the Russians invaded, and I think the U.S. probably anticipated that they would not invade from the north towards Kiev or from the south, that they would invade and maybe capture parts or all of the Donbass. So maybe the Russians expected to sort of like uh, avoid some of the trap that the U.S. was laying 
uh, by taking all of Ukraine rather than just a part. Because if, the, if Russia ends up taking the Donbass, then the, re the rest of Ukraine will be moved into NATO right away, you know, unless there's a negotiated agreement. And the U.S. clearly does not favor a negotiated agreement. So either way, if the U.S. can capture either all of Ukraine or the central and western part of Ukraine after the Russian military operation, it's cool with the U.S. because they've accomplished their goal, which is to basically put Russia in a container. We always talk about containment, containment, like containment sort of suggests that the U.S. was trying to stop the spread of socialism or the influence of the Soviet Union. There's another way to look at containment, which is you put somebody in a container and they can't move. And that's what the U.S. is really trying to do, both with Russia and China, put them in a container, surround them and make them so contained that the U.S. can dictate the terms of anything that comes later. And so, you know, obviously what Ru the reason Russia moved into a Ukraine was not because of global ambitions of Ru Russia as an imperialist power. It was to defend their country. I mean, I'm not supporting it, but I'm saying it's different than the U.S. going to war thousands of miles away in Afghanistan or Iraq or, you know, you name it, the scores of U.S. military invasions all around the world. This was clearly a national security crisis for Russia. So that's not imperialism. Lenin defined imperialism, as you alluded to in his book in 1916, as the highest stage of capitalism, meaning he said capital, the capitalist powers in the West, Europe and the United States and Japan, had basically divided the entire world into colonies, semi-colonies and spheres of influence. And that this was a byproduct of expansionist capitalism in the monopoly era, meaning monopoly capitalism rather than lots of small capitalists were the dominant power and they were fighting each other, expanding against each other to see who would dominate the rest of the world. And since the rest of the world had been completely and I mean literally divided up completely, like Africa at the Berlin Conference in 1884. All those imperialists sat down at a conference table. The U.S. was there as an observer, and they took a map of Africa, and they divided it up. And within 18 years, by 1902, all forms of African self-governance were, were gone, with the exception of Ethiopia. And the colonies had completely, I mean, the imperialists had divided Africa. But then since all of the world was divided and they kept expanding and they needed bigger and bigger markets, but there was no place else to expand to, they went to war against each other for the redivision of colonies, semi-colonies and spheres of influence. And that's what World War I was. So Lenin's book is describing this fundamental feature of imperialism. Now, that's far different from what's motivating Russia in the intervention in Ukraine. Uh, finally, uh, I was part of a collective of writers who wrote a new book, which you can find at liberationnews.org. We wrote Imperialism in the 21st Century. We republished Lenin's work, but said, look, a lot has changed. You can't just say, you can't take Lenin's text and apply it to today because the world has changed. And most importantly, it's changed by the colonies becoming independent countries. The Africa and Asia and the Middle East and Latin America, they're independent countries, formally, legally. 
They have membership at the United Nations. They have sovereignty. But what we see now is the same phenomena of the drive towards war, because even though these countries have become independent, they are in many ways, as Nkrumah stated it so properly, uh, they are neo-colonies for large part, and the imperialists are still fighting to see who is going to dominate this or that part of the world. And the function or fund, fundamental feature of neo-colonialism as a new stage of imperialism means that part of Lenin's work has to be updated and amended. But we're arguing in our book, Imperialism in the 21st Century, that the fundamental core part of Lenin's analysis, which is capitalism is moves from competitive to mon the monopoly stage, but doesn't eliminate competition, that the monopolies divide the world among themselves, that they dominate the nation states and the militaries in those nation states, and that because they are inherently expansionist and predatory and always looking to beat the other guy out, they constantly move to expand, expand, expand. And as a consequence, clashes and wars are just as inevitable as they were when Lenin wrote the book 100 plus years ago. Yeah, you know, and, and I do wonder, as we're seeing uh, the, these alle allegations of war crimes that are being committed by Russia, uh, with Zelensky being probably the most vocal in, in his desperate urge to get the UN Security Council to, uh, um, you know, kick Russia off the council or, or dissolve for the world's sake. And I feel like, Brian, in a very weird way, the fact that Zelensky has suggested that the UN uh, should do away with itself, that it's useless to the world if it does not do its job in investigating uh, alleged war crimes that Russian troops have committed, I feel like he's saying what a lot of us have been saying about the UN, but in regard to the US and its allies for a long time. So, I mean, this is a very strange turn, I think, in this uh, conflict where, you know, someone who is clearly being used by the U.S. is actually sort of right, but for the wrong reasons, like a broken clock is right at least twice a day. Mm, very, very interesting. Yeah. I mean, you can see Zelensky is frustrated because the Western powers want Ukrainians to keep fighting and fighting and fighting, don't want them to negotiate. And yet, the, the so, as so far, the U.S. is restrained because the U.S. doesn't actually, you know, want a thermonuclear war with Russia. Uh, the U.S. would prefer to basically weaken and contain Russia, carry out regime change in Russia, which is not simply to get rid of Putin, but to bring Russia back to the good old days of the mid-1990s when it was basically on its knees, uh, in which case the U.S. could, you know, sort of have the run of things. Um, and Zelensky is frustrated, and, you know, he's basically, he, he's the man in the middle, right? He's been an extension of American power, and, and in fact has basically aligned himself with the far right in Ukraine, because, and it's very interesting, about, I'll just digress for a second if that's okay. I mean, when Zelensky was elected, he came in on the program, on the, on the program of 
supporting the Minsk agreements and having peace with Russia and, quote, ending the civil war. But step by step, the political climate in Ukraine is so right wing and so dominated by what the U.S. agenda is, which is not to have peace in the Donbass, which means the U.S. basic policy is, in essence, aligned with the Azov Battalion, who they've trained and given arms to. The U.S. wants to provoke Russia and keep the war going. And so Zelensky, at a certain point, threw his lot in with the United States and with the far right. (coughs) Excuse me. And through and and as a consequence, uh, Zelensky was unable to come to what he originally said he wanted, which was a peace deal with Russia and the Eastern uh, breakaway republics. Now, Zelensky is at war with Russia and the U.S., which refused to negotiate and rejected his earlier program, is now unwilling. They're willing to send guns to Ukrainians so that they can you know, kill Russians and be killed by Russians, but they don't want to have Americans killed. And the Germans don't want Germans killed and the French don't want French killed. They just want Ukrainians to keep doing their fighting for them instead of having a negotiated settlement. So Zelensky says, so what is the UN? It's a worthless nothing. You know, it doesn't really have any guts. And in that sense, as you said, Jackie, I, ironically, he's right. I mean, the U, what war has the U.N. Start, stopped? Like, think about the Iraq war. The United States came to the United Nations. Colin Powell gave that lying speech that Iraq definitely had weapons of mass destruction. He held up that little vial of white powder showing that they had it. And the U.N. said, thank you, but no thank you, right? They said, no, no, we, we don't believe you. We're not going to war against Iraq. And so then the U.S. created what they called the Coalition of the Willing, or what what might be called the Coalition of the Bribed and Coerced. And uh, when they couldn't get the U.N. to sign off on the Iraq War, the American politics shifted. They They were denouncing the U.N. And we couldn't eat French fries anymore, remember? They were now freedom fries because the fr- French in, at the U.N. stood up to the U.S. So the U.N. is only acceptable to the United States if it does the United States bidding. And, you know, this has been true over and over again. And now we have this odd circumstance where, of course, because Russia is a member of the Security Council, one of the five members that have a veto power, uh, Zelensky's demagogic attacks are just, you know, they're sort of agitation, they're performance theater. Uh, because obviously Russia can't be evicted from the Security Council and the U.N. is not going to go away. But he's in a tight spot. And again, it shows the cynicism, really, of of American politics. They love the U.N. as long as the U.N. does American bidding. They think it's a great thing if it, the General Assembly can pass a resolution denouncing Russia. Then the U.S. is all about the about the General Assembly. But if the if the General Assembly had voted no uh, on the resolution denouncing Russia, the U.S. would have said to hell with the U.N., just like Zelensky is saying it. So the U.N. is kind of like a ping pong ball in many ways and not a real significant institution. Yeah. And, you know, Brian, the, the war in Ukraine is really just one of a goodly number of converging crises on 
a global scale, along with climate change, uh, deteriorating uh, uh, conditions here, certainly in the U.S. and around the globe. And meanwhile, our elected officials sort of pay lip service to these issues, but seemingly have their hands tied to do anything outside of give more money and resources to war, death, and bloodshed. So how does, as socialists, how should we be orienting ourselves in this moment and how we think about movement building and the millions and millions of poor working and oppressed people who are shouldering the brunt of this uh, uh, burden in a material sense. And just how do you think we should be sort of thinking about the best way to be organizing and planning and discussing and, and doing political education as the contradictions of capitalism continue to intensify? Well, I think in many ways that's the most important question of all. And uh, personally, even though I have a podcast, The Socialist Program, and you know, I comment on political affairs. I'm, I don't see myself as a, as a, a pundit or a critic or an observer or, you know, somebody who's paying attention and then commenting on world affairs. I'm, I've devoted my life to trying to change the world. And I think that's the most important thing for socialists or for people who define themselves as progressive socialists is how do we change the world, which, of course, that's a big job. It's the biggest job, but it's also the most important job, because, as you said, Sean, if one were to step back and look at the world today, I mean, objectively, not with the passion of the moment, but just objectively, you can see that the world is heading towards multiple cascading crises that are going to fundamentally impact society in an existential way. One, of course, is climate catastrophe. We keep getting warnings from the IPCC, from the UN, from scientists, like time is running out. We're moving towards a point where unless there's a reversal on the use of fossil fuels, unless we start going in the other direction immediately, we're going to have climate catastrophe that changes society or maybe poses a, a, a challenge to its, to its existence, society as we know it. That's happening. That's real. That's going on. At the same time, we have a second crisis, which is that imperialism, what we talked about, led by U.S. imperialism, can't stop going to war. And even with Russia's war in Ukraine, the U.S. is taking advantage of that. The calls at the, in the Wall Street Journal are to double the U.S. military budget. I mean, it's already about $800 billion. They want it to go to $1,600 billion or $1.6 trillion. You know, the, the, when you have that level of militarism and weapons and armaments, the only way they can continue to be replenished is if they're used. So the incentive for war is ever present. And wars, as we can see by World War I and World War II, the magnitude of the violence in those wars changed global politics. 
It actually led to revolutions all over the world. There's a third crisis. Under capitalism, if if you're at your job and a machine can take your place and the capitalist who hired you can get rid of you and replace you with machine labor or computer labor or artificial intelligence, society has no obligation to you. Society doesn't promise you a right to a home, a right to food, right to health care. Doesn't promise you any of the core things that you need to live. We know by the, by a decade from now, 60 to 70% of the existing jobs are going to be gone. And the capitalist system has no answer for the people who lose their jobs. They're like, literally, not literally, but they're, you know, cast into the dustbin of history. Uh, And then, of course, there are global health issues like the pandemic, which has been an utter failure on the part of the capitalist government. So we have these multiple cascading crises, which are actually solvable, but the existing capitalist system in the ruling class, the billionaires um, who, who really dominate, they don't care about those things. They're not worried about those things. Uh, they're only worried about themselves. And so their failure to address and solve the problems that are growing and are real, growing and real, and are going to lead to huge existential crisis, they have no answers because uh, they can't see outside the framework of capitalism. And so the socialist movement has to define socialism what a socialist reconstruction of the U.S. economy. I think a lot of people want change, but they've been told socialism is evil, that it's you know a gray or dark totalitarian nightmare, that it's the absence or the rejection of democracy and personal liberties, that it's all those things, when in fact socialism is a rational system that takes the resources of society and instead of using them to meet the profits of the 1% or 0.1% to use them for the benefit of society and a sustainable economy. We have to define socialism and be able to make the case to the majority of population in the United States that socialism is actually a better and necessary system. That sounds like a big task, and of course it is, but oddly and ironically, even though this is the heartland of anti-communism, because of the the way the witch hunt unfolded after World War II during the middle of the Cold War. I think the American people are not cynical about socialism. It's not like in Europe where socialism was tried and basically you know defeated. I think it's just a blank slate here in the United States. And there's lots of activism, lots of anger, lots of so- organizing, but it needs a political program. And I think the political program uh, of socialist reconstruction of the United States with definition about what that looks like is a necessary path forward in order to win over the people of this country that we not only need immediate necessary reforms, which we obviously do, or protect the reforms that the right wing is trying to take away, like abortion rights, like Medicaid expansion, etc. We need to fight for something positive, which is a, a, a new and better world right here in the heartland of capitalism. 
Yeah, definitely. And, you know, Brian, the way that you sort of consider your work on um, the socialist program is definitely how I see the work uh, that I do here on By Any Means Necessary in the sense that, yes, this is media work. Yes, this is news analysis. And we're talking about uh, uh, current events and global social movements and, and arts and culture and all these sorts of things. But, you know, I see it as... Um, a continuation or, or another aspect of the political work I do. And, and the important part of what, what you said was we're not passive observers of all these dynamics that we're talking about, right? We're not simply um, engaging with uh, uh, this information as it comes to us. And, and, and for people who hear this, I want you to know that you don't have to be and should not be passive either. You can be active in all of these issues that we're discussing here this hour with Brian on by any means necessary as a show and what have you. You know, this is all part of a, a broader movement building effort. And I think it's important to really remind people of the importance, really how crucial it is uh, for them to get involved because the messaging that we get from the mainstream media and from our elected officials is demoralizing and demobilizing. It puts people in a position where they're so frustrated and feel so hopeless that they're sort of almost bludgeoned into inactivity. We have to resist that. We have to fight back against all of these things that are happening. And finally, we must, we must, we must struggle and build a new society and a new system in this country. But we're going to leave it there for today and this week here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Brian Becker, so much for joining us today. We'll be back next week with an all-new slate of episodes. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.